0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Dmitry Vitaliev. Information technology and the many resources and tools that comprise the online world are, for better or worse, integral to how most activist and organizing efforts in North America today do their work. Yet according to today's guest, who works with people engaged in a wide range of efforts to create social change around the world, activists and organizers in this country are considerably less aware than those elsewhere in the world when it comes both to the digital threats they face, from surveillance to disruption, and to the skills and tools necessary to counter those threats. Dmitry Vitaliev is an IT professional who has for many years specialized in digital security and privacy technology in support of people who are engaged in independent media work and people who are on the front lines of struggles for rights, justice, and freedom around the world. He has done a great deal of work to create resources and to build knowledge and capacity on these questions among activists and organizers. And in recent years, he has primarily been involved as a co-founder and director of a Montreal-based nonprofit called Equality. That's lowercase e, capital Q, lowercase u-a-l-i-t dot i-e. Equality defines its mission as being, quote, to promote and defend fundamental freedoms and human rights, end quote, through working to, quote, create accessible technology and improve the skill set needed for defending human rights and freedoms in the digital age, end quote. They aim to do this through creating digital tools of various kinds, through education, and through capacity building. One area of particular expertise has been defending activist websites against what are called distributed denial-of-service attacks, a method of online attack meant to knock websites offline. Though most of the groups they have worked with prefer not to be named, a couple of prominent websites they've been enlisted to protect and that have given permission to be identified publicly include Black Lives Matter in the United States, and the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, movement that emerged from Palestinian civil society and has been taken up around the world. Vitalyev talks with me about his own history of contributions to human rights work as an IT professional, about the work of equality, about the relatively low level of interest and knowledge on these questions among many activists and organizers in North America, and about what we can do to start changing that. We spoke by Skype from Montreal.
1: My name is Dmitry Vitalyev. I'm originally from the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, from Moscow, an immigrant of many years and a resident of many countries. Now I'm living in Canada, where I've established myself, built a family, and so on. And have also launched Equality as an organization developing tools and providing services in the realm of digital security, but for the specific purpose of protecting and defending human rights in the digital age. I was, you know, a child when my family defected from the Soviet Union. My father was an investigative journalist. However, he was also quite adamant that I wouldn't pursue this career myself and kind of pushed me to study something that would always be useful, where I could always earn my way. So I went to study IT and I got to work, you know, in IT for a few years, but it really wasn't my thing. I thought it was a little bit too dry, a little bit disconnected from the world that I wanted to participate in. One day by chance in Ireland, I stumbled across a human rights organization who needed actually some IT support and joined them. Quite quickly realizing that some of the information that I carried as an IT professional could be incredibly useful to the activists that they were working with in the field. I remember dealing with somebody actually back in Russia as well, who was being persecuted by the local law enforcement for the human rights work that they were doing, teaching them you know, how to send us an email securely. And I recall then he didn't really understand anything I was trying to tell him, so I created a couple of pages with screenshots and he didn't understand that either. So I created what later on ended up being a chapter in one of the manuals that I wrote on email security. So it kind of all spawned from there. The need for, well, it's really the need for everyone, but activists more acutely to be able to operate with confidence and with security in the digital age was already very prevalent. And this is 15 years ago now. So that kind of spawned into several different manuals and publications. We started creating networks of trainers who would travel around the world, teaching activists, raising their awareness about inherent risks on the Internet and on their computer systems and teaching them new tools and methods on how to mitigate those risks. That continued to grow and grow furthermore, you know, without my presence as I decided to concentrate on developing the tools and the services that I really wanted to have as a digital security trainer, but they simply didn't exist back then. Myself and people who I work with have been strong advocates of using solutions which were created in open source, which allowed you know, external and third-party review and inspection, which did not entrap the users in some sort of commercial model. And for quite a number of digital security areas, these tools or these services did not exist. And they did not exist because, you know, it is quite time consuming and requires a lot of skill and a lot of people power to develop tools that would stand up to the threat model faced by these activists. So about five or maybe six years ago now, I again pivoted from frontline work into what I guess now is back-end work, into developing tools and services that are then presented by trainers or picked up directly by the users themselves around the world.
0: So you'd become aware of the issues, you'd been doing some work in the area. How did that turn into the founding of the organization?
1: The Monday following the September 11 attacks, I was working for IBM in the Netherlands. I, like most people back then, was kind of dumbfounded by where I had all of this come from and started looking up, you know, websites of these terrorist organizations in the internet just to find out who they were, what on earth they were about. Within an hour, I was visited by two very tall, very clean-shaven Dutch security guards asking me why I was visiting those websites. Immediately, you know, my technical expertise clicked as to how they could have known this information. But then my spirit of liberty rebelled and demanded of them, you know, why were they even asking this of me? I was just doing research for my personal education. I guess ever since this incident, which remained with me, I started to really consider network surveillance, network interference, network surveillance and traffic inspection, traffic filtering. And possibly this may have been one of the catalysts for me suggesting digital security advice and digital security lessons to the activists that the human rights organization in Ireland was working with. Possibly this was one of the catalysts. More and more, we were receiving cases of people being persecuted because of something they had written online, whether or not they had signed this publication with their name, they were still being discovered. More and more we were getting uh, circumstantial evidence that the content of email was being disclosed. And then as well, I was noticing a lot of kind of misguided, almost faux advice that was being handed out as digital security recommendations. For example, Amnesty International, you know, had a policy whereby email was considered an insecure method of communication so it wasn't very secure to send a message from one person to another so they decided to all share the same email box and share their login name and passwords to that email box without actually sending the messages but saving them in draft this isn't their policy anymore of course this was way back when but it struck me you know it's kind of badly guided advice when we started to offer These manuals, especially when we started to translate them into many different languages, the interest soared. I never really even envisioned myself leaving the human rights organizations until I was made aware that groups all around the world were experiencing these issues and were worried about their security online and had nobody to turn to had no resources that they could consume with their level of technical readiness or lack of technical readiness, to be straight about it. There was nothing out there for them. So me and a few people around me had voiced our readiness to give advice, to teach people about these topics. And there was a huge influx of requests, huge interest expressed by the community. We were filling in a niche, a niche for knowledge and a niche that responded to ever-growing threats that came part and parcel with the ever-growing promises of the internet and the digital age.
0: Tell me more about the organization as it exists today.
1: It's quite a disparate group, really. We do not hire based on geographic location. In most cases, we hire based on talent, on interest, on motivation, and really on the readiness to accept the rate of remuneration that we can offer as a non-profit. Most, if not all, of the people in equality are very much motivated to make a positive contribution, to turn back the clock, really, on some of the negative, as we see them, developments on the internet. Or to at least prolong or somehow delay their mass propulsion. We require quite a high level of technical sophistication in some areas. We specialize in creating encryption protocols or in introducing new encryption protocols. We work on anonymity networks or what is popularly known as, you know, dark nets and the dark web in order to help people exchange information freely and in order to help them bypass internet censorship on the networks where they live. We also work with very sort of high load internet infrastructure, protecting websites from cyber attack, primarily distributed denial of service attacks. We are branching out into machine learning in order to help us distinguish you know, malicious behavior on our networks from users simply accessing information on the websites that we protect. So we require quite a high level of technical expertise. We are a small organization with just a dozen people really. We don't really have the internal systems to accept lots of interns and volunteers because it's very hard to spare the time to introduce them to the specific areas of knowledge that they would be working with, although we do do it, but it is very tasking.
0: What kinds of digital threats do social movement groups and human rights organizations and so on face?
1: I think the passive threat is ubiquitous, applicable to any user. These threats include everything from hacking of an account to getting a computer infected by a ransomware, you know, that would encrypt all your documents and demand payment for their decryption. Having a website infected by all sorts of malicious software, simply losing or having your computer or smartphone stolen. So these kind of common risks obviously apply to activists as well. However, activists also face targeted threats. The ability to break into an association of activists, whether they would be, you know, Iranian or Russian or Chinese or Canadian or American is a huge problem and the ability to craft phishing and spear phishing campaigns is readily available to people with some sort of modicum of technical skill. So activists are often the target of sophisticated and semi-sophisticated campaigns to break into their accounts, to infiltrate their networks. And then also the domain that we work with quite a lot to knock their websites offline. So many organizations rely on their website, on their internet presence as the primary mode of communication and the primary reason really to update their community on their work, to release their investigations, to publish news, to publish the results of their projects All of this is done most of the time through their websites. Now, when this website is knocked offline, it is a way to censor them, basically. It is a very rough, a very brute method of censoring them, of stopping their message. So we see that quite a lot in the four years of existence of our website protection infrastructure, which is called Deflect. We have identified over 430 separate attacks against the websites we protect. We have just released a report late last year on attacks against the Black Lives Matter movement website, which we have been protecting for the last eight months and which itself attracted over 120, I think, separate incidents. So I feel that activists do certainly attract a lot of the negative attention and a lot of the digital threat because of the nature of their work, and because of their reliance, and quite often over-reliance, on technology to do so.
0: You mentioned that you've been working with Black Lives Matter, protecting their website. What other groups has Equality worked with over the years?
1: Well, we work with quite a lot of organizations. We also work on the assumption that we do not publicize our collaboration unless they give us explicit permission to do so. So I can't talk about all of the organizations we protect or work with in respect for their privacy and the fact that their association with us may be a problem for them in their country. Our previous report was an attacks against the BDS movement website. This is the Boycott, divest and Sanction movement and their primary website, which is under our protection. And our first report, for example was on an independent investigative journalism website and organization on the outskirts of Kiev in Ukraine. This was basically a group of environmental activists who were trying to prevent the illegal logging of a forest near the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. We work with groups quite a bit in the Middle East, in Syria, a lot of independent reporting coming out of Syria a lot of groups that work on the Israeli-Palestine conflict. We also work quite a bit with kind of intermediary organizations, such as uh, ethical ISPs, Internet Service Providers, who host many of these websites and basically use Deflect as a layer of protection to their infrastructure as well. We have designed Deflect in open source Meaning that anybody else out there, anybody listening to this program can go on our website and download everything we have worked on in the last five years and replicate their own infrastructure. We only want to promote the adoption and the propagation of these tools, the propagation of security for all on the Internet.
0: So, given that most of the groups that you work with are not groups that have much money themselves, how do you keep your organization going?
1: We seek grants. We're a nonprofit. We write proposals continuously, try to win them, then implement them, spend a lot of time in reporting, and so on. However, we're trying to change this paradigm. We would, we would like to gain a degree of independence. From the various funding calls and from the various funders as well, we would like to sometimes concentrate on this particular technology that may not have, you know, a funding proposal around it. But yes, today there has been simply fundraising. Sometimes we do small consultancy based projects. So, yeah, we're investigating new avenues for how we could begin to generate revenue. Whilst, as you rightly pointed out, not relying on our actual clients to be able to afford or to pay for these services. And it's quite tough. There is a modicum of free on the internet, you know, free Gmail, free Facebook, free Cloudflare, which is another service similar to the flag, but a commercial one. So it would be hard for us to all of a sudden not be free to start charging for the services because we don't make money post-factum out of your personal details. You know, we don't build your social graphs and sell them to Walmart. And we don't have this security entrapment model where it's free to join. But as soon as you start getting attacked, well, now you better start paying. So we're also quite principled and quite adamant, you know, not to change these policies. So it would be hard for us, yes, to start making money that would come close to reimbursing our costs from the clients who we currently protect. Having said that, there are organizations, these intermediary ISPs and so on, intermediary organizations that are based, let's say, in the West that have similar budgets to us that could afford and, as I believe, would agree to paying for the services So, we're investigating this and other options for how we can start generating our own revenue and getting a little bit of independence and stability in the long run.
0: What's your sense of the level of consciousness among activists and organizers in Canada specifically of these kinds of online threats and challenges?
1: By now, we've spoken to investigative journalists, legal organizations, government structures that are tasked with improving knowledge and awareness around technology and security in the populace, academia, and activists. The interest has been growing because the sheer amount of incidents around us is growing as well. But still to date, most people, this is at least my impression, have a feeling that this is a problem that exists somewhere else. That first and foremost, they are protected in their online life as much as they are protected in their offline, in their physical presence. Now, this may be so by the letter of the law, albeit speaking strictly in Canada, you know, Bill C-51 and other provisions have largely changed this letter of the law. And what people don't really think Feel is that online the violation of your privacy and of your rights, you know, very much happens unbeknownst to you. The fact is that most of this pervasive and rights violating technology that has been deployed against activists and democracy movements around the world was actually built here, built by companies. From the United States, from Canada, from the UK and so on and was then purchased or adopted by governments that don't provision for the same protections for these citizens. Now this technology is also present here and the legal landscape is changing here. We have seen, you know, so many incidents of, you know, the G20 protest movements being completely infiltrated and broken up by police using, you know, the most rudimentary techniques. We have seen all sorts of organizations being hacked and having their information leaked. We have seen, you know, journalists having their phones surveilled and police deploying IMSI catchers, you know, protests to intercept the coordinating actions which are going on there. So I think one should bring all of that together in a single place and reflect on the fact that the technology for surveillance in the digital age is born out of western organizations the legal landscape is changing especially as it relates to digital communications and digital data and in many ways the activist groups that i have seen here are much less prepared with their what we call operational security as it relates to technology especially then the activists that we work with, you know, let's say in Belarus or Kenya or Argentina. It feels to me as a result of not having placed enough importance on these issues and now having such a huge chasm of knowledge to catch up on, such a huge gap between the capabilities of those doing the surveillance and the realities of what the activists understand and can do now that it's a very problematic situation.
0: What kind of advice would you give to people, particularly activists and organizers, for starting to learn more about some of these issues?
1: To be honest, I think you just need to want to do it. The information is out there. A lot of my peers have spent a lot of time developing many, many guides on all sorts of aspects of digital safety in many languages. There are many more tools being developed right now. There is a lot of media attention being devoted to this specific publications that concentrate on the topics of digital security and uh, all sorts of issues of freedom on the Internet. The information is out there. Now, one may not know where to start or one may be overwhelmed by the amount of issues that they feel they need to be up to date with. But I would say that that should not stop them from attempting in terms of where to start. Actually, this is kind of plugging our own work. We did a project called, the project itself is called the Digital Public Square, and there is a part of that project which is called Hygiene. You can also get to this project through our website, equalit.ie, equality. This is a kind of a build-your-own-adventure in the world of digital security where you're supposed to start with just having questions. And we will ask a series of questions to determine what is your actual problem that you're trying to solve and then forward you to the right resource. So I believe this is a good way to start. The other would be to start following some of the publications that write often on the topics of digital security and provide advice as well, such as RS Technica and uh, The Verge. And motherboard and the intercept and to try not take guidance or not take the kind of dramatic impressions which are created by the mainstream media. So I guess the guidance is don't be overwhelmed. Do begin reading up on publications that specialize in digital security, but digital security for the general reader, not for the expert. And do check out, you know, some of the manuals on our webpage, on the webpage of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, on websites of the Tactical Technology Collective. And from there, you will find many other links and many other resources.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Dmitry Vitaliev, co founder and director of the nonprofit Equality, which works to provide tools, services, and education related to digital security and privacy to those engaged in human rights struggles. To learn more about their work, go to their website at equalit.ie. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen,